World War I was one of the deadliest conflicts in human history. Almost 10 million soldiers lost their lives in that war. 16 and a half million deaths in total. The quick rise in technology had given mankind more powerful and more efficient ways to kill each other than they had ever had before. And this war was marked by brutal trench warfare. It was essentially a stalemate with the, the lines divided mere hundreds of yards apart. There was a no man's land in between littered with bodies. And the trenches were cold and wet and the artillery was bombarding them constantly. Every time a trench was tried to be gained, tens of thousands of lives would be lost only to lose that trench just a few short days later. If you've ever read accounts of this war, the death tolls, the living conditions, all of them are chilling. From this war comes this letter. Henry Williamson, writing to his mother, was a 19-year-old private in the London Rifle Brigade. He writes this. Dear Mother, I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a coke fire. Opposite me a dugout, a wet dugout, with straw in it. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary. In the, in the pipe is tobacco. Well, of course you say, but wait. In the pipe is German tobacco. Ha-ha, you say, from a prisoner or found in a captured trench. Oh, dear, no. From a German soldier Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and the Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches. They exchanged souvenirs. Yes, all day on Christmas Day. And as I write, marvelous, isn't it? was the Christmas truce of 1914. Soldiers meeting between the trenches, singing carols, having church services, playing soccer together. This was not any official decree come down from on high. These were soldiers who started singing Christmas hymns and eventually met in the middle. They left their arms behind for a fleeting moment of peace. These were bitter enemies And they decided to stop killing each other for a few days. And they had a vision of what their world could look like. Marvelous, isn't it? Stories like this, I think, tug at our our heartstrings because it offers us a vision of peace for our world as well. What could our world possibly look like? We live in a world of warring political factions, a a world of warring violence in our streets. We have family wars over the Thanksgiving and Christmas tables. 
And we have the war of sin and shame that is raging in our own hearts. And a vision of peace can bring hope to our lives and to all and and, and, and bring hope to our lives, but at the same time it, it leaves us in great despair because of our inability to obtain it, right? Our inability to obtain it. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. Um, you might have that, on your, have that on your phone or you might have your Bible with you. I encourage you to open it up. Isaiah chapter 11 and also spend a little bit of time in Matthew 3. And we're going to talk about this vision of peace because that's what we have in Isaiah. It's an image in Isaiah of the truth that we all long for. The prophet is telling us of a time where wolves will dwell with lambs, where lions will eat straw alongside oxen, and where children, in this magnificent reversal of the curse in the Garden of Eden, where children will play in the nest of snakes and have no fear. What an amazing vision of peace. It's given to Isaiah in a time in Israel's history that is anticipating one of their darkest moments. God's judgment was coming on God's people in the form of one of the most terrifying occupying nations in history. The Assyrians were coming, and they would wipe the northern kingdom and their ten of the twelve tribes of Israel completely off the map. In fact, Isaiah is declaring that the whole people of God would be judged for their sinfulness. He uses the image of a forest of trees being clear-cut all the way down to the stump. A land as barren and lifeless as the no man's zone between the dead man's zone between World War I trenches. And yet, in the midst of such lifelessness, the Lord gives Isaiah this vision of hope. It's a vision that not only promises a lasting peace, but a complete reversal of the curse of the Garden of Eden. And so what we'll see from our passage this morning is that this peace, this vision of Isaiah, is obtained by an anointed ruler and his righteous judgment. An anointed ruler and his righteous judgment. So first, the anointed ruler. This move from Israel's desolation to their everlasting peace begins with a ruler anointed by God himself. Let's read Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Imagine, if you will, like we said, a clear-cut forest. A mighty forest of trees has been clear-cut, and you, you can only see stumps as far as the eye can see. Now imagine noticing that one stump in this field of desolation, that one stump with a tiny little green shoot, right, coming off the side. A moment of hope for a desolated forest. This is the stump of Jesse. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. You remember Jesse, right? 
David's father, King David's father, King David was the one who inherited the promises of God that a ruler in David's line shall sit on the throne, how long? Forever. The shoot of Jesse is alive. And this ruler, this anointed ruler, will come from the stump of Jesse. So in the the moment of Israel's lowest point, their most desolate, God is promising a faithful ruler will emerge. And this ruler, we see, will be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, if you think about the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, um, it's a little different than we understand the Spirit of God now. After Pentecost, the Spirit of God has been poured out on who? On, On all peoples. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God fell on particular people at particular times for particular reasons. So Moses was anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God fell on Saul, right? And then the Spirit of God left Saul. And the Spirit of God was on David. The judges had the the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God will fall on this shoot from Jesse's stump. It will be the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, a Spirit of knowledge, and a Spirit of fear of the Lord. So the king, the ruler that is coming, is anointed. He's anointed by the Spirit of God and he comes in the line of the Messiah. Now the task of this ruler is his righteous judgment. He's called to set a broken world to rights. He looks at the world, he says this world is broken, he casts his judgment and he sets it to rights. Let's read Isaiah 11 verses 3 to 5. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteous shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a ruler who will come and judge with divine perception. He will perceive things that we cannot see. He will perceive things that we cannot hear. He will not judge based on what his eyes see or the lies that might be fed his ears. He will judge on the motives of the heart. He can perceive motives and see into the hearts of men and women. And he will judge in righteousness and faithfulness. Imagine, again, if you were in Israel and you had a history of hundreds of years of unrighteous and unfaithful kings. They weren't pursuing God. They were pursuing their own interests. They weren't pursuing judgment. They were pursuing their own power. And so they would judge in their favor. And and the rich and powerful would get richer and more powerful. And the poor and lowly would get poorer and more lowly. And here is Isaiah saying, you will have a ruler who is faithful to God. And who is righteous. A divine ruler. An anointed ruler. And so Isaiah, in summary of this passage, he's he's preaching to a cut down Israel. He's saying an anointed ruler is coming. And judgment and justice, in judgment and justice, he will set the world to rights. And then, 
Only then, after his judgment and justice, will this reversal of the curse be found. This new Eden where lions are grazing with oxen, where, where sheep actually invite the wolf to come and dwell with them, and where the young will play with the serpent without fear. That's the vision, this vision of peace. So now, let's take that, okay, keep that in your head. We're going to fast forward a couple of hundred years to Matthew chapter 3. In our Matthew reading this morning, John the Baptist takes this imagery from Isaiah chapters 10 and 11, and he applies it to Jesus. God's judgment is coming, he says. Even now the axe is laid to the base of the tree, and one is coming after me, an anointed ruler who will separate the wheat and the chaff. The judge will, he will judge the world and he will set it to rights. He is anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. And he will baptize his followers in that same spirit. And so John says, repent. Lest you be cut down again like Israel in the days of old. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent from your wickedness, from your unrighteousness. Because the axe is at the base of the tree. Now here's what's fascinating. Isaiah, all the prophets, John the Baptist, they knew God was setting the world to rights. But they had no idea how he would do it. He did send a divine ruler. He did send a righteous judge. He did come to set the worlds to rights. But this judge would judge the world by receiving the judgment on his shoulders. This Jesus, the only righteous man, the only one who didn't deserve the penalty, the curse of the garden, would take the curse on a cross. So that those who believe and have faith in him might be freed from the curse and share in everlasting life. Friends, the coming of Christ as a, a child in a manger and his death and resurrection offer us a true and better Christmas truce. After that Christmas truce of 1914, the fighting resumed a few days later and went on for several more years. As if that wasn't enough, we did it all again in World War II. But God's peace, for those of us who knows Christ, who know Christ, God's peace is everlasting. He has come near to us that we might have peace with him. And so let's just consider briefly how we might take this home today. Two ways. And the first one is this. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt your Christmas cheer. It's a lovely time of year, isn't it? God's judgment is coming. And the axe is laid to the base of the tree. Now, there are some of you here this morning that don't know the Lord Jesus. And listen carefully. This part of the sermon is not for you. Church, followers of Christ, people of God, God's judgment is coming. Just like it did for Israel, God's judgment is coming. Christ came to set the world to rights 
He has given us the same anointing of the Spirit that He had on His shoulders. He's given us that to participate in His justice and righteousness before He comes again. To anticipate this peaceful kingdom that will be delivered to us once and for all. To be the church, yes, it means proclaiming the gospel. Inviting others to know this peace. It means making disciples. But it means working for justice and peace now. In anticipation of what is to come. You think those Israelites that were being, um, being warned by John the Baptist, you think they didn't know the Lord? They knew their Bibles inside and out. They went to Sabbath every week. Friends, we must repent and return to the Lord. We are called now to strive for the peace of God that we are promised will come once and for all. God's judgment is coming. But finally, and for all of us in this room, God's peace is coming. For those who know Christ, God's peace is coming. Through God's judgment, and through the judgment of his righteous ruler, will come peace, real peace, lasting, everlasting peace. Some of you are saying, no, I object. I object to this judgmental God. Give me the loving God. Imagine, if you will, though, a new heaven and a new earth where there is no judgment. Where sin has not been judged. Where evil has not been judged. Where everybody just comes on in. Just as they are, without change. What kind of heaven would that be like? be a lot like earth there's no hope in that God's judgment is a hopeful thing and so some of you here you're at the end of your rope you're wondering what is the meaning of life what is the purpose of my life you've been shamed you've experienced evil and injustice All of us have been there. Know this. We have a Savior in Jesus Christ who has suffered those same things. Who's identified with the very worst that you have ever been through. And he's done this so that he might set the world to rights. So that the shame committed against you and in this world, the injustice committed against you and in this world, the the evil in this world and the sin that is waging war in your own heart will be set to rights. And it begins with Christ coming as a little child. But it ends with him coming again in glory as the ruler of this world. And so know this, friends, you are loved with a perfect love, and you are honored with a perfect honor. And you have a Lord that weeps with you, and he is setting the the world to rights. And he's inviting you, through faith in Jesus Christ, to step into his kingdom.